How you guys doing? Uh, I had seven fifth grade girls at our house last night for Kaya's 11th birthday party, and uh, we're all alive. There was shrieking, squealing, gasping, and the girls were also loud. Um, this morning on the way in, you know, we had the Bakersfield Marathon, and this year they decided to close all of the entrances to the church instead of just most of them. And so as I'm dragging street road closed signs off of the on-ramp so that we can get to church, I'm thinking to myself, this is probably what it felt like to cut a hole in the roof and lower your friend down to Jesus. And then, and then I started to think about probably just a really minor act of vandalism. Um, <laughs> it felt a lot more holy at the time. They never told you who repaired the roof. Anyways, okay, random thoughts with Pastor Daniel. We're in the good news, our series through the book of Luke as we study stories about Jesus and just look at his interactions here on earth during his mission. And we're gonna be in Luke chapter five today and uh, got lots going on. We had a phenomenal spring fling Jado fest yesterday in the parking lot at Jado. It was a lot of fun. I hope you were able to come. Uh, we've got new invite cards that just came in. You may have missed these on the way in. Make sure you get some. Uh, we have, you know, it's Easter invite on one side of the card and then an invite to the series that starts after Easter on the other side. Uh, and those are out in the foyer, so you can grab some of those to invite some people. We had our community group uh, leader huddle yesterday, getting prepared for Easter. Uh, I promise you that the reason that the stage is so empty is not because things are being repossessed. Uh, we're clearing it off, painting, getting everything ready for Easter. So lots of, lots of good stuff. Um, really preparing our church in all of our different areas and departments and ministries for our opportunity at Easter. So with that said, uh, you can always sign up for our emails and texts so you know what's going on in the life of our church. I highly encourage you to do that. I want to read you this story uh, from Luke 5, and then we're just going to walk through what is such a simple story that most of us have probably heard it before. In fact, if you went to Sunday school, you probably heard it. And if you're as old as I am, you probably watched it played out on a felt board. You remember what I'm talking about, right? Before there were screens, before there were electronics, before there were TVs and videos and veggie tales. Because we couldn't draw well, we cut things out of felt and we played, the, okay, anyways, all right. I'm really old, I'm dating myself. Uh, Luke chapter five, verse one. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon, this was Simon Peter, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord." For he and all who were with him were astounded at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. All right. 
Let me give you a little bit of background here. Uh, the night prior to this, what we find out is that uh, Simon, uh, who will later be named Peter, Simon has been fishing all night long. He's a professional fisherman. He has more than one boat because he has partners in this enterprise. And they've been fishing all night long. Now, we also find out that the day before, Jesus has come and healed Simon's mother-in-law and after that has been staying at his house. Word's gotten around. And so people were flocking to Simon's house because Jesus was there and he was healing the sick. Now, all this has happened prior to this story. And so then we get to verse one. It says, on this occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him. So what has happened is Jesus' miracles of healing have attracted a crowd and that crowd is not simply pressing on him to be healed. They're pressing in on him to hear the word of God. So much like we're gonna see in all of the miracles that Jesus does, as Jesus is doing these things, it is to glorify the Father, it is to capture people's attention, it is to open their ears so that they will hear about the kingdom because Jesus spends most of his time speaking about this kingdom that will come. And so Jesus has done all this work, he's done these miracles, he's done this healing, he has impacted people so that they will listen to the message of the kingdom. And they're pressing in on him, they're pushing him right to the, to the edge of the shoreline, there's nowhere to go, and so he steps back into a fisherman's boat and asks to sit down and teach. And that's what we see in verse two. And so he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Well, why were they doing that? Because after fishing all night long, they would have to take all of the nets out of the boat. They would have to mend where they'd broken. They'd have to clean them out and take all of the seaweed and the other stuff that got in there. And then they'd have to lay all of the nets out so that they would dry. Then they could fold those nets and pile them back in the boat to await going back out to fish the next Night. So their job's not done. They've been working all night long, but they're still not done. And Jesus is teaching, sees an opportunity, steps into these boats, and asks Peter to put out from land. Now, I want you to hear this. This is the first real inconvenience, actually, for Peter. You see, he's not done working. He still has a lot of work left to do. If you've ever owned your own business, you realize like the job is never done. There's always something more to do, and he still has a lot to do. Jesus wants his help, so Jesus asked him to put out from shore. There, there's still work to be done, and he's, you know, all right, fine, acquiescing to the request of Jesus by putting out a little bit from land. Now here, we get to something quite interesting. Oh, and, and, and you'll see this in, in verse uh, three. He sits down to teach. So understand, if you were a Pharisee, if you were, if you were a rabbi, if you were a teacher, if you had authority in this culture, you would sit down to teach. So the person had authority actually sat down. So he's sitting in the boat, teaching with authority from this boat to people on shore. Verse four, and when he had finished speaking, he turns and he says to Simon, who's in the boat, put out into the deep and let down your, your nets for a catch. Let me just start here before I even read verse five. Uh, we don't probably contextually understand what this request is, but you gotta understand, this boat, each boat would have over a thousand pounds of net. So, so this isn't like, oh, you got some little nets, right? Like row over here and toss it out. What they would do with these circle drag nets, it, it was a hundred feet. 
in circumference. It usually took multiple people to haul a thousand pounds of net, that's when they're dry, and throw them progressively in a circle in order to encompass a large enough area to grab fish. Now, here's the next thing you, you probably need to understand. You don't fish in the daytime. It's really hot here. There are no fish in the daytime. They go all the way out from the shore and they get really deep at the deep parts of the lake and you can't get them with nets. That's why no one fishes in the daytime. That's why they were night fishermen. All of fishing was done at night. That's why you went and slept during the day. So there's no reason to put nets out in the daytime. That's not when the fish are out. So here's what Peter says. Peter's the professional fisherman. He says, Master, we toiled all night long and caught nothing. Now, if you like fishing recreationally, like I do, uh, you've probably heard that a bad day fishing is still better than a good day at work. The problem is this was work. This was a bad day of fishing and work. And, and it, they weren't doing this recreationally. This was to put food on the table. This was to pay bills. They've worked all night, still not done working, still more to do, still got to do the maintenance, still got to go out tomorrow night, and we didn't catch anything. And he's trying to let Jesus know, listen, Jesus, I know you're a teacher and all, but we who know how to do this have fished all night long and caught nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Now, uh, let me ask you this. We've probably all met somebody like this. Y'all ever met somebody that always knows how to do something even when they're not the expert? Maybe you're related to someone like that. <clears throat> Don't raise your hand or say anything. You might be sitting next to them. Like, you know what I mean, right? Like the professional contractor is over to tell you how they're gonna fix something and they have three decades and have been certified in it and this is all they do and it's their profession and then like, your mother-in-law is like, you know what you should really do? And you're like, oh God, don't say it. Please, please don't, please just don't, please don't say it. And then they start to give them advice on how it should be fixed and repaired and built. We, no one else knows anyone like that. It's just me. I'm the only person who runs into these people, apparently. You would be amazed at how many congregants really are experts at preaching. I mean, a lot, apparently. I mean, just think about from Peter's perspective, this is all he does, this is all he knows. He's a professional fisherman. And Jesus is like, listen, Peter, go ahead and, I, like, just, uh, come on. Peter could have just been like, dude, why don't you get back to the preaching and allow me to do the thing that I do well, which is the fishing. And he wants to say, I mean, that's the start of this, right? That's why Jesus didn't need the information that they'd been out all night. First of all, he knew. And second of all, like this is just Peter going, Jesus, literally, we just did this for 12 hours. Okay, so why does he say yes? Why does he even put the nets out? Why does he, why does he row back out to the deep and put the nets out? I mean, it doesn't even tell us, right? Here's the thing about faith. Faith is not this, this perfect thing where you have this utmost faith and you just, you just immediately have no reservations and you have no worries and you have no concerns. Like, it's begrudging most of the time. Oftentimes, you have to fight for faith. It's a struggle because you can't see where it's headed. 
And Peter, Peter, Simon Peter has no idea where this is headed. At this point, he's just going, okay, like maybe, maybe he's worried, maybe he's worried that after he owes Jesus because Jesus healed his mother-in-law. Maybe he's worried that he just doesn't want to hear from his wife if he says no to Jesus because he healed his mother-in-law. May, I don't know. But he says yes in obedience. Begrudging, half-hearted, but he says yes. I want you to hear that. Begrudging, stubborn, not all in. He's not there. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, we've read the story. We know what's coming. Peter doesn't even believe anything miraculous is coming. And it's not like Peter hadn't seen the evidence. I, read the chapter before. His mother-in-law had been healed. There are flocks of people coming to his house because Jesus is healing them. That's not normal. Today, at the height of science and medical science, if someone shows up and starts praying over people and cancer is just disappearing and tumors are just shrinking and going away, trust me, everyone's showing up. In fact, just for the idea that that might happen, even if it's not true, we'll show up and have some dude like wave his jacket around and slam on us and everything and like people will show up to those churches like maybe I'll get healed. It doesn't even have to be true. Now imagine if it's really happening. Peter's watched all that and he's still not a believer. He's seen it happen with his own eyes. He still doesn't believe it. How do we know? Because if he had, he's not telling Jesus, listen, Jesus, we fished all night. Jesus wouldn't need to know that. Jesus didn't need a medical diagnosis to heal any of those people, amen? He just healed them. So Peter's not a believer just yet. Peter's not there. He's seen Jesus' miracles, and yet he still doesn't believe. So verse 6, follow this. Verse 6, and when they had done this, when they were obedient, they enclosed a large number of fish. Now, I want you to know that in Greek, that actually means a large number of fish. <laughs> Just a lot, okay? And their nets were breaking, they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and they filled both boats to the point they were sinking. That's how many fish. How many fish does that represent? Um, a, a, a wealth. It's not a fortune, but it would have been months, if not a year's worth of wages. So, so in an instant, Peter went from all night, zero fish, to I've now paid everything for the for a year in an instant. Verse eight. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now that is such an amazing response that I want to make sure we talk through what that is. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid, for now on you will be catching men. Now, it is a unique response that in seeing this happen, he falls down at the feet of Jesus and says, I am sinful. I I am wicked and then says get away from me what Jesus just filled up all your boats 
with so much fish that you're basically going to be wealthy and, and carefree for the next year, and your response is, get out of here! But you know what? That's not the only time we see this in the Bible. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah is given a revelation. He, begins, he gets to see the holiness of God. And when he sees the holiness of God, I want you to hear what he says in Isaiah chapter six, verse five. When he sees the holiness of God, this is what he says. He doesn't say like, how miraculous, how amazing, all that's cool. I didn't know there were unicorns. I mean, it's nothing like that. He says this. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What is he saying? Listen to Job. In, in, in chapter 42 of Job, after Job and, and God have God back and forth, and God comes down and he speaks to Job, and he opens his eyes, and he reveals how big and how great and how holy he is. This is what Job says to God. He says, I have heard of you. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. What is it about seeing the holiness of God that causes these men to immediately go, get away from me, like I can't even lift my head? I think about Paul in Philippians 3 when he begins to account recount all of his qualifications religiously and then says, and I count it all trash. I count it all rubbish because of what it's like to just know you. We see every single time someone truly sees the depth of their sin in the Bible and the holiness of God in comparison, we see two things. When we see God and how, how holy he is, which means how, how bad, how far away we are, every person in the Bible that sees that is immediately afraid of mixing ourselves with a holy God. Like oil and water, like we can't even be around, like, like it would stain you, God, stay away from me. That's the response. Now, verse 11, uh, verse 10, verse 11, verse 10 says this, Jesus tells him, from now on, you will be catching men, which is a, a hilarious pun. It's just one of those times in the Bible where you know that God has a sense of humor. Like, we don't have a sense of humor because that came from sin. We have a sense of humor because God has a sense of humor. And, and, and like, one of the re places you see that is Jesus making little puns. You're gonna be a catcher of men. Like, Peter wasn't gonna go out and throw nets over people, right? I mean, like, he was... There's a, I don't know if you guys have watched The Chosen, but The Chosen actually has an episode on, on Jesus and Peter, and when, when he tells Simon you're gonna be catchers of men, he tells him this. He says, listen, Peter, you go catch them. I'll sort them out. I love it. You just, you just drag them in, you, you know, because in the nets they would drag in the good fish and the bad fish. They would separate them into piles of what was sellable and what they threw away. And so he tells Peter, like, you catch them. I'll sort them out. It's a, it's a great line, right? It's not in the Bible, but it's a great line. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, here, here's the point of the whole message. The point of the whole message is that I believe there are four common responses 
from humans, both in the Bible, from you and I, in my life, in your life, in our culture, are four common responses when we see our Savior. When we're introduced to this idea of who God is, there are four common responses. And we see one of them from Peter here, but I want you to see the three common responses that we do not see in this story. And the reason you need to understand these three common responses that are not here is because we have a culture, we have a country, we have a community, and we even have churches that are selling you on one of these other responses. And they're not the right responses. And they're powerful. They'll constantly be tempted down these roads of other, other things. And I want you to see them in your life. I want you to see them in my life. I want you to look out for them because of the wrong responses. Here's the first common thing that we see that Peter could have done. Here's what he could have done. He could have seen this miracle, and he could have dismissed it. He could, have, he could have written it off. You know, it's probably a scientific reason that the fish just happened to be in this one place at this one time, and Jesus probably got lucky. Right? Even a blind squirrel finds a nut some days. How do we know he could have done that? Because he'd already done it. Had he not? Jesus' mother-in-law was healed in front of his eyes, and he wrote it off. Probably a coincidence. People are flocking to his house because Jesus is there healing people. He's writing it off. Still hasn't seen Jesus. Still hasn't seen Jesus. Still hasn't seen Jesus. And then right at this miracle, whoo, he sees him. He didn't have to. He could have dismissed it again. He could have written it off again. Do, do you, how many times in my own life have I, got, have I watched God work in power in, in the, my midst, in my life, in the people around me, and I just wrote it off as a coincidence? I wrote it off as something that I could just sweep under the rug, like, mm, probably not God. He could have. He was doing it already. How many times in your life is God working in power all around you in your midst as he's wooing you to him, as he's, he's pulling you to him, and you're just writing him off left and right, just sweeping him under the rug? Do you realize the Bible says that God's power is in such great display around us through his creation of us? that we wouldn't even have to have been told the gospel, that we could simply look around us at what he's created and realize, wow, there has got to be a God that did this. There's got to be. Romans 1.20 says it this way. It says, for his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they, you and I, are without excuse. Do you know, we keep saying that as we, uh, science progresses, as we learn more about science, we'll realize there's no need for God. Do you know the bulk of all astrophysicists in the world believe there's a creator? Do you know why? Because they have studied science. The more you study science, the more you come to the inevitable um, conclusion that someone very intelligent and clearly more powerful than any of us created all this, set it in place, holds it in his hands, spun the earth on its axis, and holds it in his hand, lest it fly off into space. 
We don't learn more about science and get further away from God. We study science and get closer to God because everything in creation points to the fact that there is an eternal power that did something that no one else is capable of doing. And the only way you get around that truth is to dismiss it and sweep it under the rug. He could have done that. He could have dismissed it. You know what else he could have done? He could have looked at a year's worth of wages in that boat and he could have been like, uh, how do I get some more of that? Did you know what I'm saying? Like, like if I, I'm a business guy, I mean, I'll be really honest. If all of a sudden I've worked for 12 hours and got zero fish, and then at the, the, the moment, the sentence, the command of one man threw the nets in and got a year's worth of wages, I'd be like, Jesus, what do you think about next week? Again, maybe a 30-70 split. Uh, okay, 60-40, I mean, uh, that's fine. Right? Right? And, and if you think that that's ridiculous, all you got to do is turn to Acts chapter 8 and look at the magician Philip in Samaria when he sees all the healing that's going on and all the miracles that are going on. He goes to the apostles. He goes, so uh, how much I got to pay to get in on this? Like, could we negotiate a rate? And they're, they're, they're pretty ticked at him. I'll use n- nice language. Uh, but what is he saying? He's like, dude, that, how do I get that? How do, I, how do I get some of that for me? I mean, two boats worth of fish at your word? Sounds good. And why does that matter? You're going, man, I don't do that. Oh, really? Um, let's talk about that. Let me talk about your prayer life. You see, I, I can pretty much guarantee you that Peter wasn't praying to meet the Lamb of God. After 12 hours of no fish, you know what Peter was praying for? Fish. He wanted to pay bills. He wanted to put food in mouths. And, and I can pretty much guarantee you that the bulk of your and I prayer life is about the things that we desire. In fact, let me put it this way. There's a term to encapsulate a doctrine that floats around American churches right now. It's not new. We just gave it a new term. It's called the prosperity gospel. And here's what it says. It says, listen, God wants to make you wealthy. And if you're not wealthy, it's because you don't have enough faith yet, brother. And if you would just have, if you, if you just have more faith, man, God will give you everything you want and everything you desire. And if that sounds anything like the temptation of Satan in the wilderness to Jesus, oh, that's just um, a coincidence. But really, God's just your genie and maybe you're just not rubbing the lamp hard enough because he wants to give these, these, these things to you. And if you think that I'm making that up, I Googled Luke 5 sermons and one of the most famous pastors in this country has a sermon all about, in fact, the name of it is, God wants to sink your boats. Yeah, God wants to fill your nets. That's the whole sermon is about how God wants to make you wealthy. Look at Luke 5. And then... We'll get you a cool coffee cup with a verse on it that says, through God, all things are possible. (laughs) And we won't read the 10 verses before that where the wealthy man walks away from Jesus, refuses salvation, and Jesus says, man, it would be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. And his disciples go, then how will anyone be saved? And Jesus says, through God, 
All things are possible according to his purposes. The entire purpose of that verse is not about you getting wealthy. It's that in spite of your wealth, you might for a moment have a revelation of how good God is and be willing to walk away from it. That's all things being possible. Not us getting our wishes. Listen, God is not primarily concerned with your happiness. He's concerned with your holiness. And what he will wring out and and create in your life is circumstances in which you'd be willing to walk away from the boats, not dearly hold on to the boats and ask for more fish. So as you pray for wealth, as you pray for that promotion, as you pray for that relationship that you so desperately desire and you believe things would finally be right if you could just find the right one, let me just tell you that God is only going to be willing to give you the parts that you can handle and still be holy. If what God will bless you with is going to rob you of desperation for him, why would he give it to you and be a good God? My kid might really want a, a, a knife, right? A, a big old butcher knife. They're two years old. I don't go, oh, sounds good. Here you go. Like, I care about them. God cares about you and what you would do with wealth. Let's be honest, what I would do. I used to have a, really, a buddy, he was always praying. Every time there was a financial difficulty, he'd pray. I was like, man, maybe I'm gonna win the lotto tomorrow. And I go, bro, do you know what you'd do if you won the lotto? You're an idiot. You wouldn't be more holy tomorrow if you won the lotto. You'd be less holy tomorrow if you won the lotto. Yeah, I would. Then you ain't winning the lotto because God loves you. In my life, in my life, I will urgently pray for something that I think I want, and in God's grace, he will transform me over time, reluctantly pulling me along to the point where I go, man, I'm so glad I didn't get that. Because if I had, I wouldn't be more desperate for Jesus, I'd be less. He could have wanted the power. He could have decided that the cost was too great. That is the story of the rich young ruler in Mark 10, is he's done everything right, he's been moral, he's, he's studied the law, he's kept all the commandments, and he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, follow the law. And he says, I've done all of it. He goes, well, you lack one thing. And if you read the text, it actually says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So he told him the truth, only because he loved him. He said, you lack one thing, sell everything you have and come follow me. Now listen, we read that, okay? We read that and we, in, in my arrogance, I chuckle at the rich young ruler. But I'm gonna be really honest with you. If today I said, pull out your checkbook, write your life savings, the deed to your house, every possession you have to the Bakersfield Pregnancy Center. Give it all away. Go follow Jesus. Ain't gonna be many people left in the congregation. You know why? Because we love stuff. Woo! Do we love stuff? Y'all ever seen uh, Thor? There's the gatekeeper guy, and he gets to go collect a bunch of stuff, and he goes, behold my stuff. (laughs) Are we not like that? My stuff. And Jesus says, man, be careful. Be careful, because where your heart lays, whoa. Be, be, be careful with stuff. Because you know what stuff does, man? It blinds you. And do you know how hard it is for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven? 
because you have stuff? Because we, we do this with stuff? Like it's gonna, it's gonna fill that hole inside of us? Peter's gonna, you tell me Peter's gonna walk away from his business. He's gonna walk away from a fishing enterprise when it finally started going good? Like all that toil where he didn't catch fish and now it's going great? Now he's got all this money and he's gonna walk away? No, now it's time to double down. Let's get some extra fishermen. Let's get some help. Let's get those better nets, you know. Let's get the Nimbus 5,000 ships or whatever they are. Behold my stuff. He could have decided the cost was too great. Said, man, Jesus, appreciate the fish. This can help a lot. Hope your ministry goes well. Here, take a little bit, you know, for you, for you, a little taste. I'll see you next year. How many times have I decided the cost was just too great to do what God was asking me to do? Like I had this weird feeling in the middle of lunch the other day. I was sitting there and I was like, I think God wants me to get up on my booth and just start talking to the whole restaurant about God. And I just, I chickened out and decided that the cost was too great. That I would, I would be too embarrassed if I did that because who, who's seen a guy get up on their, the bench at their table and just start talking to everyone in a restaurant? That's weird. I didn't want to be that guy. And so I just chickened out. I was like, it's not worth it. I decided the cost was too great. How many times have you decided the cost was too great? Well, God was leading you to do something and you knew that in obedience you needed to take the step forward. Not that you knew what the end was because Peter had no idea what the end was. And you just said, nah, it's too great. It's too much. Do you know what's wonderful about God? For most of us, he'll come ask again. Amen? He'll come ask again. He loves cowards like me. He loves sinners like you. And he'll come back again, and he'll ask again because he loves us. Those are the three things Peter could have done. He had a fourth option. This is what he chose. He could leave his boat. He could leave his boat, and he did. He did. Luke 9, 23 says this, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, we miss the context of this all the time, but it says deny himself. That means you're gonna want things you gotta say no to. You're gonna desire things you gotta say no to. You're gonna, you're gonna have plans that aren't God's plans and you're gonna have to crush those plans because he tells you to take a step of obedience to someone else. And then it says, after you deny yourself, you're gonna have to pick up your cross. What does that mean? You're going to have to wake up every single day and determine today's a good day to die for Jesus. Now that gets in the way of a nine to five sometimes. We get caught up all the time in our plans, in our things, in the, in, in, in the, in the messiness and noise of life. And the Bible says, listen, reset yourself. Get up, decide, I will deny my own preference. I will deny my own interest. I will deny my own plans. I will pick up a cross, which is the symbol of me being willing to die for Christ. And now I'm gonna follow him. And if anyone thought that he misspoke, he says it again in Luke 14, now great crowds accompanied him and, turn, and he turned to them and said, and why does he look at great crowds and turn to them? Because most of them are there because he offered them something that they wanted. And he's going to clarify now, what does it mean to follow me? Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not 
hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. I gotta, I gotta what? I gotta hate every, no. What he means is you have to be so desperate for me that all other love in your life would be like hate comparatively. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. What in the world does that mean? In 1519, the Spaniards decided that there was uh, gold in the New World and they were going to find it. And so this guy named Hernan Cortez gets a bunch of conquistadors and they, they sail themselves over and land in Mexico. And he decides that to be all in, to be completely committed to finding this treasure, he needs ultimate commitment. So they burn all of their ships so there's no turning back. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. When you realize how good God is and how desperate we should be for him, you fall down at his feet and are willing to burn the ships. What does the future look like? I have no idea. Neither do you. Neither did Peter. Didn't matter. Imagine Peter... Imagine Peter having one of these other responses, starting down the path with Jesus and then being like, ooh, that fish looks pretty good. Imagine Peter knowing he would be ultimately martyred for the faith. He would die a martyr's death. He would deny Jesus. He would be an embarrassment at times. We, we, would, we laugh at Peter at all the tomfoolery. That's my nice word for that that he does in his lackluster faith at different times following Jesus. And then ultimately, after living through poverty and dying a martyr's death, if you ask Peter right now, would you change anything when you left the boat, what do you think he's answering us? Absolutely not. I'd leave a thousand times again. Not because it helped my happiness, but because he's worth it. He's worth it. That's, that's every story about Jesus in the Bible, every, every uh, pearl buried in a field that you would go by, every count the cost before you build the building, every one of these illustrations is like if you could just understand and see how good God is, you'd burn the ships. You'd leave the boats. My encouragement to you today is that every single one of us has dismissed God at different times when we've observed him and he's called us into obedience. Every one of us at times has asked God for things that are just clearly selfish things and we want them and we think they're gonna make us happy. And I mean, we're really at the point of worshiping the created things more than the creator. Every single one of us have counted the costs at different times and chickened out because we said those costs are too high. And you know what's great about God is he's back again pulling you and wooing you and inviting you and bringing you back into relationship with him. No matter how many times you failed, he shows back up, inviting you into something greater than this existence, inviting you into a relationship that actually satisfies, not the ones we keep craving. So my question for you today is, is very simple. Which one of these are you today? What season are you in today? As God is... Let me just say, God is always, always pulling us 
speaking to us, inviting us into relationship, showing us and revealing us where he's working around us all the time. If you think, man, I just don't ever hear from God and I don't understand why he doesn't talk to me, let me just tell you what that is, is you not seeking him and listening. And I do this all the time. I'm like, man, I wish God would show up, but I filled my ears with so much stuff and I consume so much content and I'm so busy in my life, I don't know how I would ever hear God anyway. God is inviting you, he's speaking to you, he's wooing you, he's attracting you, he's, he's pulling you into something greater. What you and I must do is make the space and time to listen to him and then in obedience without knowing how what the final step looks like, take the first step that he calls us to. So where are you today? Are you dismissing the work of God in your life as not really God? It's probably something else like coincidence. Are you clinging to stuff, behold my stuff, as if that's going to somehow satisfy your eternal soul. Are you chickening out? As God calls you into something greater? I just want to encourage you that God will continue to come back into your life, inviting you into something greater and telling you to leave your boat. To leave your boat. So we're going to do we're going to do a closing song right now. If you've never had an opportunity to put your full faith in Jesus Christ, to leave your boat and chase after him, we're going to have our elders up here. We'd love to talk to you about what it looks like to pursue Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, but you just feel like, man, that's leaving my boat is not what would describe my current pace of, of pursuing Jesus Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to just pray through what repentance looks like. God, I'm going to turn from what I have been doing. I'm going to come after you and chase after you all the more. If you want to come and speak to someone to pray about that, we'll be up here. If you want to use the altar to do that, you can. If you want to do that in your seat, you move as the Lord leads you. Let me pray for us. Father God.